in praise, sitting there just overwhelmed by the thought of God's grace and, and then mesmerized by the harmonies. And then I said, well, man, that was awesome. And then I'm like, whoa, but those words are powerful. And, but that singing is awesome. I was, I was sitting there with all those feelings and then also thinking about uh, our sister Constance's prayer and, and uh, with all that's happening in our world. And uh, I'm just listening to news with Russia on the border with Ukraine and all the tensions we have and weirdness even of the Olympics, all the stuff that's been going on. I think, Lord, how dare I think I could just come up here and preach to people when our hearts are so heavy with so much that's going on in the world. But it was that grace. And you sang about grace. I'm just reminded that it's only by God's grace that we're here, <laughs> that we're breathing, that we're interacting and that we have even a glimmer of hope for tomorrow. Oh, thank you. Lord God, we do give you thanks. We are grateful for who you are and for what you do. Your grace is indeed amazing. <clears throat> we, can, we can certainly count our troubles, but we are overwhelmed when we think about your goodness. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to do the work that needs to be done in this world, but we know that you do that work through your people. So we are saying, Lord, we are once again opening ourselves up to say we want to be a vessels ready for your service, service in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in this world. And, and maybe we have yet to imagine how we can be put to service, but we are open. We're ready. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to use of this time that you've been gracious to give me to speak on your behalf. And Lord, how, how just uh, audacious that seems to me. But I ask, Lord, that you would help me to communicate faithfully and clearly and to honor uh, this time your people and you. Holy Spirit, have your way, I pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians. Not in great detail, but hopefully in a way that will allow us to get a gist of what Paul is saying and see how it might relate to us even in our time. You know, there's an old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Oh, I hated that saying, because I didn't know anybody. <laughs> and my parents weren't well connected. We didn't know enough people in the right places. You know. So when I hear, it's not what you know, it's who you know, when I hear that communicated, uh, it, that no matter what my skills or my education, no matter what I knew, I'd be kept out of the best opportunities because my family wasn't connected to the right people. And I still don't like the expression, I have to admit, even though I, I know it's true. But this is an important point. When it comes to our Christian journey, it's not about what we know, but whom we know. It's not even about our correct doctrinal convictions. Experiencing salvation or knowing Jesus better and better is not about what we know, but whom we know. Paul wants these Philippians, and by extension us, to understand that our faith is ultimately about knowing Jesus Christ, experientially, not merely academically. We want to know Jesus with our full selves. Paul gets rather personal in chapter 3. I'm not reading the entire chapter, but there's a personal 
part that he shares about his background, and then he gets into what he hopes to progress to after he's reflected on his past. And that starts in chapter 3 of Philippians around verse uh, 12 is where I'll start. This week I'm actually reading from the NIV. I have been in the NRSV before. I, got, I was gifted this NIV with big print. <laughs> so anyway, enough said. <laughs> but that's not why I'm using it today. It's just <laughs> there was actually some translation things that I preferred. But anyway, um, 312, I'm starting. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. <laughs> Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Amen. The Lord blesses the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I told you a few verses earlier, Paul had reflected on his personal experience. He talked about all of his accomplishments as a very zealous um, of a Pharisee in training. And he, in essence, concludes that part by saying, I traded, you know, my trash, all of that he called garbage, for truth. And here's my new goal, he says. I'm not trying to depend on those spiritual things that might be impressive to others. Instead, I want to know Jesus. He says, I want to experience resurrection power. I, I even want to suffer and somehow relate to Christ's death so that I can experience a resurrection myself. And he says his goal, his desire, as he gets up into verses 12, what we read just now, is, is, is to know Christ. And this is from a man who's already shown his devotion because he's sitting in a prison on account of his faith. But he's not blaming Jesus for his predicament. He's not asking, why me? He's not throwing a pity party. Paul says, I want intimate connection to Jesus. This is what it means to know him. Do you want to know Christ? Not just know about him, but know him intimately. Recognize his voice. Share his mind, to walk and talk with him. Know that he's with you. I believe we all want that. Paul wants to know the Lord and the power that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. There is this Holy Spirit power that's available to us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, Paul would say. 
is here for us, the children of God. So we can have this power to live a godly life, to, a power to trust God in the difficult circumstances, the power to witness of our faith among hostile forces, the power to make it in this world, and, and actually not just make it, but to leave a legacy for others to follow. There is this resurrection power available to us, and I want us all to know that power, and that's what Paul is getting at. He also wants us to share, he says, in the sufferings of Christ. And that sounds ludicrous, but Paul knows that even through suffering, it won't bring salvation. That was Jesus' suffering. But our suffering even can have a powerful impact on lives, our life, and the lives around us. Paul says his goal was this intimate knowledge of Jesus. So today we're going to look at this discussion of Christian maturity, this goal of knowing Christ. And the main point today is being together in one spirit is like running a race. It's like running a race. Now, <clears throat> I hadn't thought about it till a little while ago when I was, when y'all was singing, we were singing, and, um, and I said, you know, there's some personal things I'm going to say in this sermon, and I said, oh, there was a lot of personal stuff Paul says in Philippians 3. So maybe that was what prompted me at some point, was thinking all his personal reflection. But this Black History Month affords me the opportunity to talk about some personal black history. So about 10 years ago, Susan's father, Benjamin Franklin Steele, he passed away a few days before his 90th birthday. So when I think about my father-in-law's life, I have to think about the changes that he experienced as an African-American from the rural South. So Mr. Steele quit school to pick cotton as he grew up in the Mississippi Delta. I don't know how many children today can, can even think or imagine what it's like to pick cotton out in the sun. So my father-in-law was a child during the Great Depression, as was his wife and also my parents. The economy has been tough in recent decades, but people during the Great Depression had it worse. I think that's why Susan and I still to this day can hardly throw away stuff because we didn't see our parents throwing away anything. You know, folks who grew up in the Great Depression, they held on to everything. But especially black people, Asian people, other immigrants had it had horrible time during the Great Depression. So Susan's father and my father as young men, they entered a segregated army with the expectation that fighting for Uncle Sam would lead to some changes back at home. I have some old pictures just to show you. So the one on the left is Susan's father, Benjamin Franklin Steele. The, I don't have very many pictures of my father, but that's Thomas Oscar Edwards on the right. <laughs> but after their times from my dad in Europe, Susan's dad in Japan, they returned home to a segregated America. So opportunities for black men were hard to come by. Susan's father became a tailor, trained at Tuskegee. My dad never got to finish college, went to work as a clerk at the post office. So these men and their wives, our mothers, endured poverty, a world war, racism in a variety of forms, and a host of personal struggles. They lived through the civil rights era and managed to see most of their children go to college and have better opportunities in life than they had. Susan's father outlived his wife, outlived my parents. He lived long enough to see a black man take the oath of office as president of the United States, even though in 2008, Mr. Steele really did not believe that Senator Obama would get elected. <clears throat> and one that I think a lot of people were aware didn't think that was gonna happen. One thing that I find remarkable is that faith in Jesus, even if unsophisticated and unrefined, rested in Benjamin Franklin Steele and Billie Jean Looper, and his wife, Loetta Glenn, my mother, Thomas Oscar Edwards, my father. 
These people and countless others like them trusted God for years of their lives when they could not be sure that things would ever change. And they lived their lives in this ambiguous world without being consumed by the bitterness and hatred. In essence, they had hope. Maybe this is the same for your parents or grandparents, especially immigrants who put up with more injustice than we can imagine, who hustled, who struggled just to make it to a place where their offspring could have a better life. Those kinds of people have real faith. They have the kind of faith that understands that life is not always easy, but it's worth it to persevere. They're not quitters. They are tenacious people who put up with a lot of junk for a lot of years, and sometimes all they could do was pray. They prayed that God would make a way out of no way. They prayed that the Lord would guide their feet while they ran this Christian race. They recognize that this life is a race, and perhaps you've heard that said many times. Maybe you have come to know that the Christian life is a race, and you found out the race is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And you found out that, that, that this is a long adventure, it's an epic journey, not a quick run to the corner store. And even though the times have changed and some of our challenges are different, we are still running a marathon. We still need to have a long view of this Christian life and not the short view that some preachers go for. Some people want you to just focus on short-term experiences that might give you goosebumps or, or some emotional high, but no high lasts forever. It only sets you up for another fix. Sadly, there are Christians who function like that, hunting around for another high and frustrated when they can't get it. In the meantime, they have not nurtured their faith. They don't know how to read or understand their Bible. They've not nurtured a prayer life. They don't know how to talk to and listen to God. And those sort of spiritual addicts don't even know how to explain the Christian faith to someone else because they've been living off of emotional Sunday services. So one way to explain our faith is to liken it to a marathon. So running this race together in one spirit requires a goal, a strategy and motivation. That's what I think about people who run a lot, because I don't do it. I mean, <laughs> I do my little quick thing in the gym, because I got to get my heart rate up. I lift a lot, and I probably shouldn't be lifting as much as I do now as I'm getting older. But marathons, those people are a little crazy. <laughs> but I know that it's done, and I know some of y'all do it, so I respect that. In fact, I stand in awe of it. But there's a goal, there's a strategy, and there's some motivation. What's our goal? The Apostle Paul confesses here in verse 12 that he has not yet attained his goal, which is the fullest knowledge of Jesus that he could have and all that goes with it. He wants to be closer to Jesus. He wants to be as close to the Lord as possible in his life. He knows that there will be a resurrection. He says it again in verse 21. There will be a final day when we will know fully, even as we are fully known. But in the meantime, this humble servant of the Lord, even though he was a great apostle, recognized that he was not yet at the point of full knowledge of Christ. I mean, earlier in this letter, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. While Paul is alive, he wants to be as intimately connected to Christ as possible. And I hasten to point out that this knowledge of Christ is not primarily cognitive. It's partly that, but knowledge should be both intellectual and also experiential. I started my PhD studies at a time when relatively few African Americans had doctorates in the field of biblical studies. There was this newspaper article that came out even around the time. Someone from my church brought it to my attention. And uh, 
I wasn't blessed with the resources to work on a degree full-time. I pressed on as a young father and pastor, going part-time for about nine years. And when I passed the oral defense of my doctoral dissertation, the dean congratulated me, and he said I was the first African-American to earn the PhD in Bible from the Catholic University of America. And I thought, first? Oh, well, thank you. I didn't, I didn't mean to make it sound all that monumental, but I guess it was. And all along the way, I met lots of people who have tremendous amounts of head knowledge. I mean, amazing. They know lots of things about the Bible and the portrayal of Jesus in the Bible. This knowledge is good, but it's not all of what Paul means. Knowing Christ is about our heads and our hearts. It's about intimacy. Paul is talking about growing in intimacy with Jesus, and I find it amazing that the great apostle Paul, who wrote about half of the New Testament, who God used to, <clears throat> excuse me, to spread the good news of Jesus around much of the Roman Empire, that he felt he still needed to grow in intimacy with Jesus. I think, oh my goodness, how far I have to go. But as for this Christian race, Paul knows what the goal is. The goal is Jesus. Always. I once received an email from a friend. It included a New York Times article. This is going back now several years. It was about a marathoner who was a Christian. It was a fairly lengthy piece, uh, painting the picture of a zealous young man with a talent for running. And I have, I'm going to read a little piece from that article. The man's name is Ryan Hall, and this is what part of the article said. Underpinning his running is his faith. The marathon is so isolating in its training, so impossibly fast at the elite level, so restricting to two performances a year for most top runners that many athletes seek a purpose larger than themselves, something to believe in more than the numbing miles of road work. For some, it is their families or an escape from poverty. For others, it is their religion. If you run without any reason, you are just chasing the wind, said Wesley Courier, the reigning Boston Marathon champion from Kenya. During the 2011 Chicago Marathon, Hall began singing praise to the Lord, freestyling, he called it. Career joined in, come Lord Jesus, come, the two runners sang as they ran, come Holy Spirit, come. After finishing second at the 2011 United States Half Marathon Championships, Hall went to drug testing, a standard procedure. Asked on a form to list his coach, he wrote, God, you have to list the name of a real person, a doping official said. He is a real person, Hall responded. <laughs> well, some of you are distance runners, and you know, pardon my earlier uh, joking about your um, mind to do that. I just, I just don't have it in me, although I have tried at times. So unlike me, you understand what it means to run with a goal like these marathoners in the article. And even if you don't run at that level of competition, you, you run to beat your previous time. Your, your goal is to finish, even if not to win. It's sort of like the Christian race. We aren't running to beat each other, but we run our best. We give our best efforts in order to reach the goal. Yeah. Now, I understand runners have a strategy when they're racing. They pace themselves. They know how to handle different terrain, how to pay attention to their bodies. And we know that for all of us, the goal is perfect knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what is our strategy for running the race? Paul gets at that as well. Twice he says that he presses on, he strains forward. He keeps working the sports metaphor, straining forward. The point is that he puts forth whatever effort he can. Once again, he's not working for a salvation, he's exercising discipline. 
He says this to the church in Corinth. This is back in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That's a pretty powerful image of verse 27. The old King James used to say, I buffet my body. I used to read it as I buffet my body, and that led, <laughs> that, that led to other problems. <laughs> so, So what, <laughs> but he has a strategy. There's a discipline. What's our strategy for running this race? I mean, in practical terms, I mean, basically it involves setting some priorities and we can't rely on the spiritual maturity of other people or just think that God will zap us with maturity. We become mature through our experiences. <laughs> Amen. So we think about our priorities. Do you make time? to read and study the scriptures, especially with other people? Is prayer part of a lifestyle or just reserved for Sundays and emergencies? Are you in meaningful Christian relationships with some level of accountability or are you just winging it? Are you honestly paying attention to the Spirit's work in your life or just crossing your fingers and hoping for the best? Are you living out your faith by being the best on your job that you can be, the, being the best student you can be, doing your work as unto the Lord? Are you keeping commitments to your family or allowing yourself to be seduced by money, power, or popularity? How do you deal with the stresses and strains, healthy ways, or pacifying yourself with food, sex, workaholism, alcohol, some other form of self-medication? See, pressing forward is part of the strategy for running the Christian race. Pressing forward involves some discipline. Another part of the strategy relates to putting the past into perspective. Verse 13 says, forgetting those things which are behind. Now that word there, forgetting, I, I feel it could be more accurately translated disregarding those things. See, the reason I say this is that we think forgetting means having something slip from our minds you know, intentionally or unintentionally, you know, forgetting a phone number or forgetting where we left our keys. These are, might be unintentional acts of forgetfulness. But we intentionally try to forget some other things, negative experiences. We try to block some things out of our minds, hope that it, nothing will trigger a memory of them. But that's not how the Bible speaks of forgetting or remembering. I mean, obviously, Paul had not blocked the past from his mind because he just told us about it a few verses earlier. When the Bible speaks of us or God forgetting or remembering, it means making a conscious effort to act or not act. So like in the Psalms, if there's a prayer that God remember his people, it's not that God blocked them from his mind. Rather, it's to ask that God act with deliberation. And forgetting is, is the opposite of that. When we ask God to forget our sin, we're asking him not to hold what we've done against us. We don't want him to act in accord with our sin. So therefore, forgetting the past means that despite what happened to you, you can choose not to go backwards. Despite your own mess, your formerly bad theology, your legalism or whatever, you, you turn from that, you repent, which is to make a decision not to go backwards. 
the fact of what you were, what you did, or what was done to you may still be in your head, but you choose not to let those things define you or determine your actions. You choose not to act on outdated information. The enemy of our souls would love for us to keep focusing on what we used to be and how far short we are of what we should be. But we need to take up Paul's admonition and disregard those things that are behind. And you ask, how do we do this? And the answer involves what Paul would call renewing our minds or thinking in better ways. We're going to get to it in the next chapter because he'll tell us to think about things that are true, noble, right, pure, and lovely. And when someone goes through recovery, they don't go back to those places that tempted them or, hung, or, they, or, or, or hang around the people that dragged them down. They develop new habits, new acquaintances, new patterns, and we do the same. We stay away from the triggers that might drag us back to old ways of thinking and doing. You know, I said at the leadership uh, and staff retreat that I sometimes feel surprised at how quickly I have felt connected to you all, and you've been so gracious to me. So I've been telling you a lot of personal things about myself, and I trust you won't hold them against me. And I have a particular problem I'll share with you. It's one of the personal issues that I'm always working on. Because of the experiences of my childhood in church and at home, I often find myself struggling to believe that I'm worthy of anything good. And I have difficulty when people give me compliments. I often don't know how to handle them, and I deflect them. I often will change the subject, and I know this about me. Well, I had it pointed out about me. <laughs> I now give concerted effort to addressing those negative thoughts when they come up. So I work on choosing to disregard the messages from the devil or from my wounded psyche, to rebuke those words, confess God's truth. See, doing that is part of what Paul means here. We forget, that is, we deliberately reject and counteract our old natures, and we graciously accept the truth that God has given us new natures by His Spirit. If anyone is in Christ, that one is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. You've probably noticed that the Apostle Paul was familiar with sports. He keeps making little metaphors and references to athletic competition. I don't know what he would think of modern-day Olympic games. There's probably a lot of fanfare. I don't know what they did back in ancient Greece or Rome. I haven't studied that area particularly. But he does emphasize discipline and focus. But he's referring to our spiritual lives when he talks about racing and even boxing. And one thing about sports that we don't always appreciate is the practice that's needed before the actual event. Any of us who ever play sports, we know how important practice can be, but it feels like a drag. We're talking about practice? <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, it's, you know, when I was uh, at Trinity Seminary, <clears throat> toward the end of my time there, uh, they had built a new sports complex and named it for the then president, um, Ken Meyer, the Ken Meyer Sports Complex. So this was in the late 80s. So we, seminary students, we were excited. We'd go down there and... You know, I'd be lifting weights. Everything was all new. It was really kind of fun. And, uh, and the new football coach for the college, Leslie Frazier, played for the Bears here, was the new football coach for Trinity College, the first year they ever had football. This was 1988. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it was a long time ago, and I think about it. 
Well, a bunch of us was playing pickup basketball. And uh, I am not a good basketball player, and I don't mind saying it. I've always said it. But I am not anything if not adventurous. So I will, I'll play if you pick me on your team. So we were playing a full court game, excited about this new gym. And I remember there, a ball, I, I managed to steal a ball. There was a fast break, and nobody bothered to chase me. Even though I'm not a good player, I'm still, I was reg, relatively quick. So I'm going down court, but then I hear these feet pitter-patter, pitter-patter. It was Coach Frazier. He was in the game, and he did not hesitate to chase me down. And while I tried to get my layup, he swatted that out. He was a good athlete. And he, after the game, he said, hey, Dennis. He said, do you think some of the seminary guys would want to scrimmage the football team? I said, with pads on? I said, we get to hit people? I said, yeah, you know, because I was 28. I wasn't thinking straight. <laughs> but but they, he said, we'll get you the equipment, and you guys got some practice time. We had just like two weeks to practice, and no special teams, of course. That would be really crazy. But they hired refs. They had college students out there. And we actually looked good for like the first five minutes. We scored. There was a guy at the seminary that I had known back in college who wrestled at my college. And the two of us, we were, we were holding it down at the beginning. And then it's like, you know, everything fell apart, as you can imagine. I went to the emergency room with a messed up ankle. And when I got there, there were like three other guys in there. The next day, I come back to campus with an air cast, and one of my professors at the time, Scott McKnight, who, was, who some of you know because he was at North Park after Trinity, he looked at me and he shook his head and he said, why did you guys do that? I said, but we got to put the pads on again. He was like, <laughs> some guys will understand what I mean. It was something about that. Well, okay, that was 1988. Fast forward years later, it's 2012, and there's a guy working with the, with the Minnesota Vikings that I knew in college who had worked with uh, Christian athletes. And he asked me to come and speak at a chapel service. Well, the head coach at the time was Leslie Frazier. So I told Coach Frazier about this. I told the group about this event. And he was cracking up. He said, I didn't think anybody around who remembered that. I said, oh, yeah, I remember it. I had, you know, bad ankle to kind of prove it. But it was a lot of fun. But my point is that, that the, the fresh, those kids who wanted to play, they had a whole season of no of no games. So here they were just training, 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 no opportunity to, to compete. And that's, that was, they needed this motivation. And we actually provided that as the seminary guys who played. We helped them, at least for that time, to get some motivation. Well, well what we're getting back here is Paul wants us to have some motivation to run our marathon. And he'll give examples, both positive and negative. He offers himself as a positive example. He says, look, I'm on this journey to ultimate intimate knowledge of Christ. And he says, uh, you know, I'm far enough along that you can follow. And this can be the case for us also. We need to find models, living ones as well as some from a bygone era. So read up on people who went before us in the faith while simultaneously walking in the footsteps of some living saints. Consider looking for some great examples of marathoners in the faith. And I dare say some of them might be sitting in the sanctuary right now. In addition to positive examples, there are also plenty of negative ones. There are many people who looked as if they'd be good runners in this race, but they hit the wall early, they never recovered, they lost focus. The text says they set their minds on earthly things. Nothing good in store there. Their destiny is destruction. They serve as examples of what not to do or to be. 
Our minds are not to be set on those earthly things. We are citizens of heaven. We're not fully at home in this world. We're only resident aliens with heavenly green cards. I cannot be attached to the glitz, the glamour, the comfort, the material, the money, the popularity, the sensuality, the overall carnality. I have to set my affections on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And someone will ask, well, how do I set my affections on those things? And I don't know what all that will mean for each person. But I do know that the more I interact, say, with my wife or others whom I want to know, the more my affection for them grows. So it's about focus. I would say it's the same for the Lord. So Paul, here he is, motivated by the promise that the Lord would be his reward. He says that we should press on to win the prize of the upward call of God. And Paul seems to be sticking with his foot racing metaphor because back in his time, after the first runner crossed the finish line, he'd be called upward to the platform to receive his, his uh, crown of, uh, of uh, olive branches, almost like what's done today at Attract Me, to come up and get your, get your prize. And for Paul, the prize was Jesus. And Paul is saying that we should be motivated by the promise of eternal life. Citizens of heaven, our Lord Jesus, the ruler of heaven and earth, will return to earth, will be with his people forever. I don't know how to get us excited about eternal life, but maybe going through a pandemic helps us to focus on eternal things. When you've experienced enough loss because of death, or you have sickness in your body, you might come to appreciate the promise of life without end, when there's no more tears, no more sin, no more crying, no more dying. Amen. Now, I've been telling you a lot about my personal business, <laughs> and I don't mind if you don't mind, but our family lost my second oldest brother when I was about 11. He was about 19. He was shot up in the Bronx during a robbery. He seemed to have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, and years later when I was 20, my mother died of cancer. Then several years after that, my oldest brother died of AIDS. I still have one older brother and three younger sisters left, but I'll tell you that I'm tired of sin, sickness, and death. Lost too many friends. I'm tired of the mess of the world. So I'm a believer in eternal life. And I hope you are too. I hope you know that one day the Lord Jesus is coming back to get us. He left us here to do his work on earth, but he's coming back. <clears throat> he went off to glory after the resurrection, but Jesus is coming back. He sent the Holy Spirit to come and minister to and through us, but Jesus is coming back. Now, I know the world is a mess, and sometimes we just can't feel at home in this world, but this is okay because Jesus is coming back. I know that life can be hard. Sometimes we can feel alone in our struggles to be what the Lord wants us to be, but don't fret. Jesus is coming back. Now, I know we're not like a shouting amen kind of church except for, but <laughs> I love you, my brother. <laughs> But you know, when somebody says Jesus is coming back, that's basic good theology. It's okay to say amen. Amen. Now, I don't mean to have an escapist mindset. I don't mean that. I don't mean for us to act as if the present world does not matter. In fact, knowing that there is life after this life helps me to focus on the important work that must happen now. While we wait for Jesus to return, there is work for us to do. Don't grow weary in doing well, because in due season we will reap the harvest if we don't give up. Jesus is coming back. <clears throat> now, for those of you who, like Susan and me, who have had to say goodbye to mommy and daddy or other loved ones, I mean, maybe too many to count, actually, it's okay to cry. It's okay to miss them. It's okay to feel all the feelings that go with that grief. But let me remind you 
There's no need to sorrow like those who have no hope. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep because the dead in Christ will rise first. Our Lord Jesus will descend from heaven with a loud shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the angelic trumpet of God. We will rise and we'll be caught up to meet him in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. Let those words bring you comfort. I preached my own father's funeral, and I think I was reflecting on this because he passed away on, on Valentine's Day many years, several years ago, and uh, so I had been reflecting all week thinking about that. But one of the songs we sang said, one day, one day, I'm going where Jesus is, one day, one day, I'm going where Jesus is. One day, one day, I'm going where Jesus is. I'll be caught up to meet him in the air. I'll be caught up to meet him. I'll be caught up to meet him. Joy and happiness will be mine when we meet in glory will tell the story i'll be caught up to meet him in the air we got some old-timey songs i know but they meant something for us and while my whole rapture theology has changed quite a bit over the years i still know that jesus is coming back so i ask him to guide my feet while I run this Christian race. And sisters and brothers, I want to encourage you to run the race. We're not running against each other. We're running with each other. Hold on. Pull each other on. Grab each other if you got to. And keep us in the race, running together till we get to the end. And, and as we get closer to the end, pass the baton on for the next generation because they got to keep running the race too. Lord, we thank you for who you are for all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's example for this Philippian church. We thank you for the lessons that they learned and they were passing on in their time. And I pray, Lord God, in our time, we would remain faithful and do whatever disciplinary work we need to do to stay healthy so we can keep running this race. And I pray, Lord God, for you to uh, continue to pour out your blessings, your amazing grace on Newcom. And I thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for all that's being done. We pray for your will to always be our purpose. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen.